2: for downloading episode 20 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
2: On December 2nd, 1859, the day of his execution, as John Brown was being led from his jail cell in Charlestown, Virginia, he was asked if he wanted to be accompanied to the gallows by a clergyman. Brown, who had little respect for Southern clergy, scoffed and refused the offer he said he would rather be joined by barefooted bare-legged ragged slave children brown declared he would feel much prouder of such an escort and i wish i could have it
0: brown's jailer's wrapped a rope around him restraining his arms just above the elbows and escorted him outside there in an open wagon was a black walnut coffin enclosed in a poplar box Calm and determined, Brown sat on his casket as the wagon, drawn by two horses, made its way slowly east down George Street, which was lined with ranks of silent militia. Even though it was early December, it was a fine day. One reporter wrote that it was a sunny, spring-like day with a warm and dreamy haze.
2: The site chosen for Brown's execution was a bare 40-acre field at the edge of Charlestown. The field, usually planted with rye and corn, now resembled a military parade ground. About 1,500 militia, cadets, and cavalry were drawn up around the gallows, or were patrolling the perimeter of the field. For good measure, there were even a few cannon guarding the scaffold. As the wagon bearing the prisoner drew up to the gallows, observers saw that Brown was wearing a broad-brimmed black slouch hat, and he was dressed in the same rumpled dark suit that he'd worn in court. On his feet were white socks and a pair of blood-red carpet slippers that he'd worn in prison. As Brown was helped down from the bed of the wagon, he saw the town's mayor and the prosecutor standing nearby. Gentlemen, goodbye, he said to them, and then he ascended the scaffold.
0: Once on the platform, Brown helpfully positioned himself beneath the hanging rope. On the platform with him were the sheriff and jailer. Brown raised his pinioned arms to shake their hands, and then the two men tied his ankles, pulled a white hood over his head, and adjusted the noose around his neck. The jailer asked Brown to step forward onto the trap-door. You must leave me. I cannot see, Brown replied, and what one reporter said was, quote, the same even tone as if asking for a chair, end quote. Brown was equally composed when asked if he wanted a handkerchief to drop as a signal that he was ready to die. No, he answered, but do not detain me any longer than absolutely necessary.
2: But despite that final request, Brown was forced to stand there, hooded, noosed, and perched atop the trap door, as the troops that had escorted him from town found their place on the field. For ten or fifteen minutes this went on. One officer posted near to the scaffold said Brown stood, quote, upright as a soldier in position, motionless. I was close to him and watched him narrowly to see if I could detect any signs of shrinking or trembling in his person, but there was none, End quote.
0: Even old Edmund Ruffin, Virginia's foremost fire-eater, who had described Brown as a, quote, robber and murderer and villain of unmitigated turpitude. End quote. was impressed despite himself with brown's composure during that excruciating wait later that day redfin wrote in his diary quote, the villain whose life has thus been forfeited possessed but one virtue this is a physical or animal courage or the most complete fearlessness and insensibility to danger and death in this quality he seems to me to have few equals End quote.
2: and then at last the soldiers were ready the sheriff raised a hatchet and cut the rope holding the trapdoor in place. Brown plunged through the floor of the scaffold, but the drop was too short to immediately break his neck. One of the military men present, an instructor at VMI named Thomas Jackson, wrote, quote, With a fall, his arms below the elbows flew up, hands clenched, and his arms gradually fell by spasmodic motions, end quote. This went on for several minutes, limbs jerking and quivering, until at last the body went slack. Doctors approached the swaying form and held it still while they pressed their ears to the prisoner's chest, making sure he was dead. Several teams of physicians did this, and perhaps half an hour passed. Only then, finally, was John Brown's body cut down and placed in the waiting coffin.
0: John Brown was born in Torrington, Connecticut, and raised in Ohio. Born in 1800, he was the third of six children of Owen and Ruth Mills Brown. The Brown family held deep religious convictions and solid anti-slavery beliefs. Owen Brown provided his children with a strong Calvinist foundation of faith, and he raised them in an environment in which slavery and racial prejudice was considered unacceptable and unjust. It was from his father that John Brown inherited his loathing of slavery and his commitment to strict religious piety.
2: In 1820, John Brown married Diantha Lusk in Hudson, Ohio. Six years later, the couple sold their farm and moved to northwestern Pennsylvania, where Brown opened his own tannery, the first of his many failed business ventures. Besides farming and operating a tannery, Brown also tried his hand at raising sheep Driving cattle, serving as a wool company agent, and he was involved in land speculation at various times in his life. But he was entirely unsuccessful in all of those enterprises. Always a hard worker, but wholly unable to manage money, Brown experienced serious financial problems throughout his life and declared bankruptcy at age 42. By the time he was 56, he had accumulated a string of 20 failed businesses in six states.
0: Brown lost his first wife in 1832. A few days after giving birth to the couple's seventh child, a stillborn boy, Diantha died in, quote, great bodily pain and distress, end quote. Brown and his five surviving children, the youngest not yet two, briefly moved in with another family, but then he proposed to 16-year-old Mary Day. Mary was half Brown's age and only four years older than his eldest child. Wed in July 1833, Mary would bear John Brown thirteen more children and endure great economic hardship as her husband enjoyed little success over the years in his various business pursuits.
2: John Brown later said he felt the first strong stirrings against slavery at age twelve when he saw a slave boy beaten with an iron shovel. While living in Ohio, Brown, like his father, helped fugitive slaves who were making their way north to Canada on the Underground Railroad. In 1837, after a pro-slavery mob in Illinois killed an abolitionist newspaper editor and threw his printing press into the Mississippi River, Brown attended a church meeting where he took an oath, declaring, quote, Here before God, in the presence of these witnesses, from this time I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery, end quote. John Brown never joined any anti-slavery society, and by 1848 he was growing increasingly militant in his opposition to the South's peculiar institution. Brown demanded immediate emancipation, and as the conflict over slavery escalated from angry words and petitions to fists and clubs, and then to guns, he spurned the pacifism advocated by most abolitionists. John Brown a warrior at heart, and unwavering in his commitment to the destruction of slavery, became increasingly determined to wage war and bring down divine retribution on those who supported the institution. After attending a meeting of the New England Anti-Slavery Society, Brown exclaimed, Talk, talk, talk. That will never free the slaves. What is needed is action. Action. End quote.
0: In the summer of eighteen fifty five brown received a letter from four of his sons the sons had all moved to the kansas territory some months earlier and now the younger browns reported that kansas was practically in a state of war between pro-slavery forces and free-soil settlers the letter from his sons asked brown to come to kansas
2: brown left his wife and youngest children in new york state and traveled with his son oliver and his son-in-law henry thompson to join the others in Kansas. On the way, in Ohio, Brown acquired some surplus army swords that he would put to grisly use in Kansas. Arriving at Brown Station, about 50 miles southwest of the Free State Town of Lawrence, Kansas, in October 1855, Brown organized a small militia company with his sons and some neighbors, with himself as their captain. We've talked previously on the podcast, in episode number 12, about John Brown's role in the gruesome massacre of five pro-slavery settlers along Potawatomi Creek in May 1856. But after that incident, throughout the remainder of that year, Brown and his sons continued to fight in the escalating guerrilla war between the free-soil settlers and their pro-slavery adversaries. A pro-slavery militia that burnt the Browns' dwellings and drove off their livestock also captured two of brown's sons john jr and jason
0: in early june 1856 brown and his band joined with other free state fighters to fight a pitched battle against a much larger pro-slavery force the battle of blackjack as it was called was a confused half-day clash involving about a hundred combatants it ended with the surrender of the pro-slavery men Brown's son, Salmon, and his son-in-law, Henry Thompson, were both wounded during the engagement.
2: And then, in late August, several hundred pro-slavery fighters attacked the Free State settlement at Osawatomie, where Brown's sister and other family members lived. With just 40 men, Brown led a spirited defense of the settlement, but he was ultimately forced to retreat. Brown's 25-year-old son, Frederick, was killed by the pro-slavery force during their attack on Osawatomi. As Frederick's older brother, Jason, stood with his father, watching smoke and flames rise in the distance as the settlement was torched by the pro-slavery men, Brown told Jason, God sees it. I will die fighting for this cause. I will carry the war into Africa. Jason immediately understood his father's meaning, knowing that Africa was John Brown's code word for the slave-holding South.
1: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, everyone. I just wanted to break in here and let you know that the only voice you'll hear from this point on in this episode will be mine. That's because Tracy's work schedule was affected by the snowstorm that has rolled through here in Colorado, but I wanted to get this episode out today for all of you, so that means you're stuck with just me. Uh, Sorry about that, but we'll soldier on. Uh, Okay, that's all. A year after he entered Kansas, John Brown retreated from that troubled territory. And he left Kansas with some measure of fame, or notoriety, depending on your perspective. And then he spent the next three years in pretty much constant motion, shuttling between Kansas, New England, and even Canada, trading on his reputation as a fearless anti-slavery fighter as he tried to raise funds and to raise recruits for the strike that he planned to make into the southern heartland of slavery exactly when it was that john brown finally fixed on harper's ferry as a target isn't really clear but it seems he first mentioned it to someone in 1857 john brown had actually worked as a surveyor in western virginia back in 1840 and so even from that date or maybe from that experience he may have started to think of moving liberated slaves north up the rugged mountain corridor that linked Pennsylvania to the south. It is known that in the winter of 1847-48, he disclosed a plan to Frederick Douglass that involved using a stronghold in the Appalachian Mountains as a base to free slaves and then funnel them north under cover of the rugged terrain. But in the Years, uh, the intervening years between his meeting with Douglas and the late 1850s, Brown's thinking grew bolder, and he eventually hatched a plan that involved establishing uh, himself in a stronghold in the mountains of Western Virginia, and from there liberating as many slaves as he could find or that would flock to his banner. But from there, uh, engulfing the entire South, in a massive slave rebellion, and Brown decided the initial target of the invasion would be the Federal Armory and Arsenal at Harper's Ferry, where he could seize thousands of weapons to equip his army of freed slaves. During a trip to Canada in May 1858, while he was visiting a community of free blacks and former slaves, Brown even adopted a provisional constitution for the governance of the independent republic that he intended to establish among the ex-slaves he freed from bondage during his invasion of the South. But in the uh, midst of writing constitutions and raising funds and attracting recruits, um, John Brown was still wreaking havoc back in Kansas. In December 1858, he led a raid from Kansas into western Missouri, and during that raid, a slave owner was shot dead, and 11 slaves were liberated. And John Brown then gained even greater fame, or notoriety, by embarking on a dramatic midwinter trek from Kansas to Canada with the freed slaves. With pro-slavery posses and federal marshals in hot pursuit, the long journey took 82 days and covered 1,100 miles, but eventually the liberated blacks reached Detroit, where they boarded a ferry that transported them across the international border. The March eighteenth, eighteen 1859 headline of the New York Tribune read, Brown's Rescued Negroes Landed in Canada. So obviously, with that headline in a New York paper, um, John Brown's escapade um, had gained quite a bit of attention. But uh, John Brown's escapade was roundly condemned by Southerners, of course. Um, Amongst some abolitionists, though, it enhanced his reputation as a famous freedom fighter. And six abolitionists in particular came to share John Brown's viewpoint that a strike into the heart of the slaveholding South was a bold and brilliant plan. This so-called secret six were all men of means and standing, and they raised money for John Brown in New England and New York. But John Brown was actually keen to enlist two other abolitionists in his cause. He met with Harriet Tubman during one of his trips to Canada, and while she apparently expressed encouragement for his scheme, that was as far as her support went. And then John Brown met with uh, Frederick Douglass in southern Pennsylvania in the summer of 1859, and when John Brown unveiled his bold plan for seizing Harper's Ferry and then provoking a massive slave insurrection throughout the South, uh, Frederick Douglass was shocked. He was taken aback. Um, despite Brown's passion for his plan, Frederick Douglass could see nothing but trouble coming from an assault on Harper's Ferry. Uh, Douglass was concerned that Brown by opening his campaign with an attack on a federal arsenal, would turn public opinion, even in the North, against the anti-slavery cause. Uh, Frederick Douglass was also afraid that Brown and his men could be all too easily surrounded and pinned down at Harpers Ferry. Uh, Douglass later said he used all his influence to try and dissuade John Brown from his plan but that Brown was determined to proceed. Before the two men parted, John Brown appealed one last time to Frederick Douglass to come with him, but Frederick Douglass declined. He later said, quote, All his arguments and all his descriptions of the place convinced me he was going into a perfect steel trap and that once in he would never get out alive, end quote. While having uh, escaped from slavery as a young man, Frederick Douglass's caution can be understood. Um, Douglass knew all too well what his fate would be if he went along, and Brown's plan ended in failure. Uh, Frederick Douglass admitted, quote, my discretion or my cowardice determined my course, end quote. Uh, But after listening to the two men debate the matter, one of Frederick Douglass's companions, A fugitive slave named Shields Green decided to join John Brown. Green was actually the mission's first African-American recruit. Uh, But a week or two later, uh, a second black volunteer joined Brown. His name was Dangerfield Newby. Uh, Dangerfield Newby had been freed the year before, in 1858, um, after his owner moved to Ohio but uh, Newby's wife and children remained enslaved in Virginia, uh, some 50 miles from Harper's Ferry. And so for him, John Brown's expedition had an intensely personal element to it. He wanted to get to his family and lead them to freedom. Now, several more African Americans would join Brown's band, but the truth is, John Brown had problems attracting a large number of men, white or black, to his cause. In the summer of 1859, Brown rented a farm in the countryside across the Potomac River from Harper's Ferry, and there he gathered supplies and recruits, but in the end, only 17 white and five black recruits joined him. And now, many of the white men were veterans of the conflict in Kansas and had known Brown there, and, and three of Brown's sons, Oliver, Watson, and Owen, were with their father. Well, as summer turned to fall, the men hid out in the farmhouse as long as they could, uh, hoping more recruits would join them. But finally, with uh, funds running out, uh, running short of money, John Brown knew he would have to go with the force that was at hand and so on the afternoon of Sunday, October 16th, he gave final orders for the mission. After that, the men waited for dark, and then at 8 o'clock, John Brown gave the command, Men, get on your arms. We will proceed to the ferry. Leaving three men to guard the farmhouse hideout, including one of his sons, uh, John Brown led the other 18 men in his band down into Harper's Ferry early in the morning of October seventeenth, 1859. James McPherson, in his book Battle Cry of Freedom, points out that when Brown finally put his plan into action, quote, "...he did so without previous notice to the slaves he expected to join him, without rations." without having scouted any escape routes from Harper's Ferry, with no apparent idea of what to do after capturing the armory buildings. It was almost as if he knew that failure, with its ensuing martyrdom, would do more to achieve his ultimate goal than any success could have done. In any event, that was how matters turned out." Quote. And you know, it is kind of odd, if you study what happened, because John Brown said some things, and he did some things, as if he truly expected his plan would be a success, and he'd raid the arsenal and set up camps in the mountains, and blacks would flock to his banner, and a massive slave revolt would sweep the South. But then he also said some things, and he did some things, that make it seem as if he really expected to die at Harper's Ferry, and that his death would be the spark that ultimately brought about the final extinction of slavery in fact he made references to the biblical character of uh, Samson and Samson only claimed ultimate victory over the philistines after he was captured by them and then in a final act of suicidal defiance Samson literally brought the roof crashing down on his head and on the heads of his enemies So it's hard to know what exactly was in John Brown's mind as he entered Harper's Ferry on that cool and drizzly morning in October 1859. But anyway, here's how it played out. Uh, John Brown and his men captured the armory and arsenal, seized the Baltimore and Ohio railroad bridge over the Potomac, and sent a patrol out into the countryside to snatch a few hostages and gather up some slave recruits. And I made air quotes there, but you couldn't see them, slave recruits, because a few um, did eagerly join uh, in the adventure, but most of them seemed to only dimly understand what was going on. Oh, and unfortunately, the very first man Brown's band killed was a free black man named Hayward Shepherd, who worked for the railroad. Um, He and some other men were investigating what was going on at the railroad bridge there in town when he was shot and killed by one of Brown's men uh, who'd been left to guard the bridge. Well, with uh, shots being fired and all this unusual activity going on, it it wasn't long before the people of Harpers Ferry realized something uh, curious was happening. And after they realized what was happening, some of them grabbed uh, guns and started sniping at Brown's men. Now, the grounds of the armory and the arsenal were spread over quite a distance there along the um, edges of the rivers. Really, it was way, way too much ground and too many buildings for Brown and his small uh, band to defend in any practical way. So before too long, they were basically holed up in the armory's uh, fire engine house and in another building half a mile away at the Rifle Works. So um, you should probably mention now that Dangerfield Newby, the former slave who hoped to free his family, was one of the first of Brown's men to be killed. And sadly, a few months later, his wife was sold to a new master in Louisiana. So all of this going is uh, going on, and at the same time, the alarm is spreading to surrounding towns. And soon, uh, militia, uh, Virginia state militia, start to converge on Harpers Ferry. And so you have this uh, steady fire from the armed locals and the militia who have now surrounded the armory. And this really meant that Brown's situation, from a military standpoint, was deteriorating by the minute, but according to his hostages, Brown never betrayed any signs of panic or indecision. Uh, well, down in the Rifle Works, uh, by mid-afternoon, the five members of Brown's band there realized that their position was becoming increasingly untenable, and so they decided to make a break for it and try to reach the nearby Shenandoah River. But one local woman who witnessed the scene uh, later said, quote, Our men chased them into the river just below here, and I saw them shot down like dogs. I saw one poor wretch rise above the water, and someone strike him with a club. He sank again, and in a moment they dragged him out a corpse. End quote. Well, one of those killed down at the Rifle Works was a free black named Louis Leary who had arrived at the farmhouse hideout just two days earlier. Um, Leary had left a young wife and baby daughter behind in Ohio to come and join John Brown. Most of Brown's surviving men were now pinned down in and around the squat brick fire uh, fire engine house just behind the armory gate. Uh, Brown's son, Oliver, was killed there. And then Watson Brown was shot in the stomach, and throughout the afternoon and night, he was in such agony, uh, he begged his comrades to put him out of his misery. So, as the day wore on, um, the town outside the armory grounds descended into a state of alcohol-fueled mayhem. As the ill-organized Virginia militia turned into little better than a drunken mob. And that afternoon, after the town's mayor was killed while firing at the armory, one of Brown's men, William Thompson, who had been captured earlier and held in a nearby hotel since then, was simply taken outside the building and shot. And so finally, uh, night falls, and inside the besieged firehouse, John Brown, again according to the later testimony of his hostages, was cool and composed as he waited through the long night for daylight. Um, This despite the fact that of the eighteen men who had entered Harper's Ferry with him, half were dead, dying, or captured. A few of his men had decided discretion was the better part of valor and had slipped away, and now John Brown only had four able-bodied fighters left with him in the uh, fire engine house. Well, meanwhile, after um, higher authorities, after the War Department in Washington, D.C., received a message early that day about the uh, trouble taking place in Harpers Ferry, uh, they called out the only federal troops available, which were 90 U.S. Marines at the Navy Yard, And then they summoned 52-year-old Colonel Robert E. Lee, who was just across the Potomac River from the nation's capital at his home at Arlington, Virginia. Uh, Another officer in Washington, uh, a cavalry lieutenant on leave from service in Kansas, uh, happened to hear what was going on, and he volunteered his services. That was Lieutenant James Ewell Brown Stewart, better known as Jeb. So after traveling by rail, uh, Lee Stewart and the Marines marched into Harpers Ferry about midnight, and then soon after sunrise on Tuesday, October 18th, uh, Jeb Stewart uh, approached the engine house under a flag of truce and announced he had a message from Colonel Lee. Now, Robert E. Lee fully expected that his uh, demand for surrender would be refused, and if that happened, he planned to launch an immediate attack on the firehouse. And since hostages were present in the small and crowded building, Lee ordered the Marines to uh, attack with just bayonets. So with that plan in place, uh, Jeb Stuart goes up to the fire engine house and he actually recognizes the man who comes to the door of the firehouse. Um, Stuart had encountered this man while serving in the cavalry in Kansas. And after confirming that the man was indeed John Brown, Stuart said, This is a bad business you are engaged in, Captain. The United States troops have arrived, and I am sent to demand your surrender. Upon what terms? Brown asked. And Stuart then delivered Lee's message, promising Brown and his men protection, until President Buchanan determined their fate. And John Brown countered with kind of an odd proposal that he and his men be given um, a head start, a fighting chance to escape across the river, and then the troops and militia could pursue them. Well, Stewart said, I have no authority to agree to such an arrangement, my orders being to demand your surrender on the terms I have stated. And when John Brown indicated that uh, That being the case, he would prefer to die fighting. Uh, Jeb Stuart asked him if that was his final answer, and when John Brown replied in the affirmative, Stuart stepped away from the door and then waved his cap, which was the sign uh, that had been agreed upon for the Marines to immediately launch their assault. And as Robert E. Lee had hoped, the swiftness of the attack caught John Brown by surprise, um, but over the previous day, the defenders in the building had placed two fire carts against the entrance and then fastened the double doors with ropes. So when the Marines rushed up, they found that they couldn't batter down the doors with their sledgehammers. So there was this, uh, just momentary pause. And then the Marines, uh, who were under fire now from the building, of course, um, attacked the doors with a heavy ladder, using it as a battering ram. Um, Ignoring the, the rifle fire uh, directed at them, um, the Marines, on their third charge with the latter, um, managed to stove in one of the doors, but just opening uh, a breach that was just large enough for one man at a time to plunge through. Well, um, leading by uh, example, Lieutenant Israel Green, the officer in charge of the assault element, darted through the gap. Uh, and the firing was now heavy on both sides as the um, enraged Marines uh, ignored Lee's orders to use only bayonets. Um, the third Marine that rushed into the firehouse was shot in the stomach, and the next took a bullet in the face. And in the confusion and smoke and, and noise, the, the terrified hostages threw up their hands so that the, the Marines could identify them. One of the hostages, though, um, did have the presence of mind to point out John Brown to Lieutenant Green. Um, Brown was down on one knee, attempting to reload his weapon, when Green uh, rushed at him. And Green brought his sword down toward John Brown's head, but Brown moved at the last second, and so the sword um, just badly gashed his neck. And as John Brown fell to the floor and, and rolled onto his back, Green uh, stabbed at him, but he was using uh, a light, uh, ceremonial or, or dress sword that he would picked up the day before by mistake, instead of picking up his, uh, heavy saber. And now the blade of this light sword was deflected by a strap or a buckle on, uh, John Brown's person and the blade actually bent. And so, um, uh, Lieutenant Green uh, still caught up in the moment. Uh, nevertheless, he he kept flailing at John Brown and stabbing at him and, and finally beating him about the head with the uh, ruined sword's hilt until finally John Brown lay motionless on the floor. And meanwhile, uh, other Marines had been pouring into the building and they bayoneted two of John Brown's men. Um, one of those men was uh, kind of, Gruesomely pinned to the rear wall of the building by the bayonet thrust that mortally wounded him. And then other Marines managed to seize the the last two raiders without injuring them. It all probably took, uh, perhaps five minutes, if even that. And in his official report, Robert E. Lee wrote, quote, the hole was over in a few minutes, end quote. And so as the Marines were uh, bringing out the prisoners and carrying out the dead and wounded and laying them in front of the the fire engine house, the uh, victorious cheers of of the crowd that had gathered to watch the uh, Marines' assault turned into a house for blood. And many of those in the crowd were still, um, still drunken, armed militia. But even as they shouted for John Brown and his men to be shot or lynched right there, Uh, Robert E. Lee saw to it that the prisoners, uh, especially the wounded ones, were treated with consideration. And so, uh, less than 36 hours after it started, John Brown's rather strange invasion of Africa was over. It may have seemed a bit macabre for us to start the show with that account of John Brown's hanging, but we actually thought that that would be an appropriate way to set the stage for this episode, since it was really in the aftermath of the assault on Harper's Ferry, especially in the time between his sentencing and his execution, that John Brown scored his, his greatest victory. Because while the attack on Harper's Ferry was obviously a dismal failure from a military standpoint, uh, John Brown consciously used his trial, and then the month before his execution, to make himself into a martyr who willingly offered up his life on the altar of freedom. As Frederick Douglass wrote afterward, quote, With the Allegheny Mountains for his pulpit, the country for his church, and the whole civilized world for his audience, John Brown was a thousand times more powerful as a preacher than as a warrior. And in fact, uh, Brown's composure and his acceptance of responsibility for his acts and his rational, even eloquent statements against slavery during and after his trial made him into a hero in the eyes of many in the North. Even those northerners who had no use for abolitionists um, still professed to admire John Brown for daring to strike at the slave power that was accustomed to bullying the North around with impunity. And you know, it's interesting to think that if John Brown had died at Harper's Ferry, then in all likelihood, he would have simply been considered a criminal madman. But because of his trial and execution, he was turned into a heroic martyr. And it's obvious that John Brown realized this. When he received word of some harebrained plot to try and rescue him, he said, I do not know that I ought to encourage any attempt to save my life. I am worth inconceivably more to hang than for any other purpose. And he also acknowledged his execution would do vastly more toward advancing the cause I have earnestly endeavored to promote than all I have done in my life before. And then from his jail cell, uh, John Brown wrote to his long-suffering wife and said, I have been whipped, as the saying is, but I'm sure I can recover all the lost capital occasioned by that disaster by only hanging a few moments by the neck, and I feel quite determined to make the utmost possible out of defeat. And then at his sentencing, uh, John Brown said, quote, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted of a design on my part to free slaves. Had I interfered in the matter which I admit in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. The court acknowledges too, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed, which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament, which teaches me that all things whatsoever I would that men should do to me, I should do even so to them. It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. I endeavored to act up to that instruction. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice, and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children, and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I say, let it be done. End quote. If some Southerners uh, were impressed despite themselves with John Brown's courage and composure and bold words while imprisoned, most of them still gladly damned him to the lowest depths of hell for his actions at Harper's Ferry. And that's because Brown's attack on Harper's Ferry and his plan to incite a massive slave revolt throughout the region touched a, a raw nerve that lay near the heart of the South's peculiar institution. You see, Southern whites liked to proclaim that their slaves were well treated and downright cheerful in their servitude. But at the same time, most Southern whites also lived in mortal fear that their slaves would rise up and murder them in their beds if given half a chance. And so the news of John Brown's assault on Harper's Ferry sent a wave of fury and shock and outrage through the slaveholding states. When documentation was found back at the farmhouse hideout that implicated the Secret Six, in their support of Brown's scheme, uh, Southerners spun that out and became convinced that Brown's actions were just the tip of the iceberg and that an elaborate and thoroughly organized conspiracy existed in the North designed to promote violent and bloody slave insurrections throughout the South. As if that wasn't bad enough, uh, then Southerners were absolutely incensed at the reaction of many northern communities on the day of John Brown's execution. On that day and at that hour, in many of those communities, church bells tolled, and cannon fired solemn salutes, and prayer meetings were held, and and Yankee ministers preached sermons of commemoration. Now what many southerners failed to realize is that while many northerners genuinely deplored John Brown's actions, At the same time, they celebrated his motives. But, of course, Southerners couldn't understand that distinction. To them, it just seemed as if millions of Yankee abolitionist fanatics were endorsing theft and murder and treason. Now, keep in mind that all of this was happening in 1859, the year before an upcoming presidential election, right? In fact, the hangings of the last two of Brown's men to be captured didn't take place until March 1860. And so, as James McPherson points out, John Brown's ghost stalked the South as the election year of 1860 opened. Well, and so here's the the takeaway from all of this. It's that at a pivotal time in American history, John Brown's attack on Harpers Ferry widened the sectional divide that had already been steadily opening up between North and South. And as the presidential campaign of 1860 geared up, the prospect of a Republican president sitting in the White House caused fear and uncertainty among many people in the slaveholding states. Fear and uncertainty that an abolition-minded North would turn loose more fanatics like John Brown upon the South. And so it can be said uh, that the ultimate legacy of John Brown for Southerners was the message that the North could not be trusted when it came to the institution of slavery. And this was a belief that would have tragic consequences when the Republican candidate did indeed win the presidential election of 1860. Uh, one final note, literally, as we wrap things up, and it's this. As John Brown was being led from his jail cell in Charlestown on December 2nd, 1859, his last words, which he had written on a slip of paper and handed to a jail guard, were this. Quote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. End quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And it seems really strange to say that since that's usually Tracy's line, but it is time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is a book... Called Midnight Rising John Brown and the Raid That Sparked the Civil War. And it's written by Tony Horowitz. Some of you may recognize Mr. Horowitz's name from an earlier book, Confederates in the Attic, which was uh, an entertaining and enlightening read. And uh, I highly recommend this book of his, Midnight Rising. Let me read a. Quote from a blurb from the back cover. Let's stick with James McPherson. So James McPherson says, Tony Horowitz's gifts as a vivid narrator of dramatic events are on full display in this story of John Brown's wars in Kansas and his climactic Harper's Ferry raid in 1859. Brown's family and the men who joined him in those fights against slavery receive a more fully rounded treatment than in any other account. A special note is the discussion of Brown's self-conscious emulation of Samson by pulling down the Temple of Bondage and dying a martyr in its ruins. So that's Midnight Rising by Tony Horowitz. And as always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is at www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And, uh... What's next? iTunes. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and also subscribing to the podcast. Uh, both of those things help other people uh, find the podcast on iTunes. And I wanted to mention, we received in the past week or so uh, an email from an English listener and said he enjoyed the podcast and was listening to it on the website but was having trouble finding it on iTunes. And was it, in fact, on the British iTunes? I thought to myself, hmm, I didn't know there was a British iTunes. But it turns out there is. And we're on it. Um, so uh, we helped that uh, guy find us on the British iTunes. And as I checked out that site, I realized that our British listeners have given us A lot of really great reviews that Tracy and I didn't know anything about since we didn't know there was a British iTunes. But, uh, we, we thank you guys for, for those reviews that you've left us on British iTunes. Um, so whether you're a U.S. listener or a British listener, uh, or listening to us anywhere else in the world, um, please consider leaving us uh, a review on iTunes. We appreciate each and every one. All right. Um, sorry. So sorry. This has been kind of a disjointed episode, but next time Tracy will be back. And next time we'll be talking about Abraham Lincoln's Cooper Union speech in New York City, which uh, helped propel him to the Republican presidential nomination. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode uh, of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. I hope you'll still join us again next time, despite my rambling. Um, But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.